0: should have recorded that. Movie? That's it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> our Heavenly Father, we come before the, the opening of this institute class with gratefulness in our hearts and Father for the privilege and the opportunity we have of meeting here each Monday morning and taking up our word. Pray, Heavenly Father, that as we study Isaiah, that we may be able to learn and understand and remember. We're thankful for all of our many blessings, Father, in heaven. Pray for God's forgiving ones, and we say these things humbly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
1: Special thanks to uh, Nancy Black for our new verses.
0: She's got the first two here. Yeah. The first four lines for hers. Okay.
1: Collaborative effort. It was. Awesome. Um, I've always thought, too, since this they, ought to be like done like uh, in in uh, Jewish style, kind of a Hava Nabi, like a... Something or, or it's like... Uh, some songs in the church should just be sung standing up, right? I think this is one um, that should be done that way. So, all right. Uh, well, uh, welcome to the uh, the hearty. I always figured I, I, I told Cindy this morning. I said it's it's cold, it's President's Day, and it's Isaiah. the 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 hardcore learners are going to be here. So you you guys are way awesome. All right. That said, um, things you learned this weekend. <coughs> Those in the uh, Plano state got a got a state conference from an uh, area seventy, Elder Greer, and we learned that you don't uh, fatten the hog on the day of the fair. That's what I was doing. I got you. I stole your line. <laughs> yeah, you, you gotta do. You gotta feed him ahead of time. Huh? Okay. Anything else here? Yeah. I'm actually studying Isaiah and my scriptures and I learned that Isaiah is not written in chronological order. No, it's not. That's part of what makes this tough. In fact, today, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. We're going to be hopping around a little bit so I will be right in kind of line with... I won't be chronological either. So it won't work well. Have you ever been? No, never have been to begin with. So that's a good point. Okay, come on here. Read
0: your scriptures and you'll have a good marriage.
1: Yes, I got that one. Also, we learned we're
0: having a transfer tomorrow.
1: That's right, and we're losing. Yes. So, you're going to be down in the wilds of mesquite? Yes. That's not Plano. It's not Alan. Outer darkness. What
0: about Yeah,
1: darkness? it is kind of an outer darkness with a with a couple of cowboy oh, boots.
0: I no. I've been there. It was good. I,
1: I know. I tease those guys down there. They're good people. It's just, it's a. It's, it's a little closer to more Texas. This is, this is more suburban. That is more Texas. It's like going to Fort Worth, and it's a whole different world. Okay, it's another hand. Yeah. You know, I almost pasted that up here. Uh, Bit after uh, the attacks in uh, Daneland and uh, France. Uh, <coughs> Um, Bibi Netanyahu is calling for all Jews to return to Israel. Uh, and in fact, and I saw, and right next to that was an article in Drudge about the, the last Jews leaving Yemen. So we're, you know, we always talk, we're, this idea of the scattering and the gathering has always been one of those that when they're wicked, they're scattered, and when they're righteous, they're gathered. Well, this is one of those times when we're going to start watching the Jews, I think, being gathered because they're going to have no choice. It's, they're just coming strictly out of survival mode. Okay, so... yeah, That's really jumping to me. And I have mentioned before that... Uh, are we recording here? Oh, we are. Good. <laughs> that there are now more Jews in Israel than there are in the rest of the world. They are gathering. They're coming home. And in, and in Europe, they may have no choice. They may come out of necessity. And by the way, I always thought the, the parallel there to maybe Zion, that there may come a time when the world is so wicked that we will have no choice but to gather to Zion and her stakes, uh, just strictly out of self-preservation. So, great point. Okay, and it, and it comes across, and it comes against the moment when they're about to be scattered. They're just a few years away from being scattered. So... All right. Uh, anything else that you heard uh, this weekend? Thought-provoking rumors. Okay. Yes? I would just like to say I was so impressed by the love and concern that the leaders have at the conference. It just warmed my heart. There's a lot of tenderness there, wasn't there? Um... President, I thought it was interesting, uh, you could see why it is that uh, Elder Greer was told to bring your wife, because she brought a real tenderness uh, uh, in her testimony and in her spirit. Great, great lady. <laughs> it's part, they are a package deal, those two, yeah, that's great. Okay. Well, that said, um, I think it's interesting when we start in the, against the backdrop of uh, as, as Latter-day Saints and as those are going to be religious, as the world gets more wicked, there's, uh, it's funny how we're, we always look at the experts, and the experts know more than us. And uh, if you're believing in religion, you're kind of a backwoods knuckle-dragging, you don't quite get the whole deal kind of thing. So I found this one. So some quotes, uh, the experts. I think there is in the world market maybe room for maybe five computers. And that was by Thomas Watson and chairman of IBM in 1943. Okay. Uh, how about this one? There is no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. The shocking thing... That's Ken Olson, uh, Chairman and Founder of Digital Equipment. That's 1977. I think that's about the time that Apple said, hey, we want a home computer for everybody. And they went, that's stupid. Why would anybody want? And then we spent the first two years, for those of you who remember, the first two years being understood that you do need a computer in your home to keep your recipes. (laughs) I remember them working really hard, and you can have one in your kitchen, and then you store all your recipes. That's why you'll need a computer at home. Okay. the concept is interesting and well formed but in order to earn a better than a C the idea must be feasible it's kind of a slam against a student isn't it um, this is a Yale University management professor in response to student Fred Smith's paper he was proposing a reliable overnight delivery service and then he went on to found Federal Express But we'll give it a C because it's kind of it's not very feasible. Okay, but he's the professor; he's the expert. Who wants to hear actors talk? (laughs) That—that was the founder of Warner Brothers in 1927. Okay, sometimes we think he was right. (laughs) And then finally, a quote you probably heard. uh, Oh, two more. We don't like their sound, and guitar music is on the way out. That was Decker recording Rejecting the Beatles in 1962. <laughs> and then and then this one, Everything that can be invented has been invented. And that was uh, the Commissioner of the U.S. Patents in uh, 1890. a lot of things uh, invented since then. So anyway, it's it's fascinating when we hear the experts talk, and to a certain extent when we start talking about Isaiah, I have to think that there were a number of the Jews, we're going to talk about the pride that was always at the higher levels uh, of uh, Jewish society that must have thought that Isaiah was an idiot, and we're smarter than he is. Certainly remember, Laman and Lemuel thought they were smarter. Jerusalem's a big city with a big wall. Never could be conquered. Alright. Well that said then, uh, I want to point out one other area. One of the reasons why it is that sometimes we struggle a bit with Isaiah. Uh, let, Let me set up a scenario for you. Let's say that in your life you're struggling with a couple of heavy issues and you're really feeling like you need divine guidance. And maybe you can't sleep, and in the middle of the night, it's 2 or 3 in the morning, and you get up and you think, I need to read the scriptures. The scriptures will give me guidance and the spirit and help me to know what to do with my kids that are driving me nuts or my uh, primary class that is out of control or uh, whatever it is that think about the issues that you struggle with. So you get up in the middle of the night, And you open up Isaiah 7. So let's go to Isaiah 7. And here's what you read in the middle of the night. And it came to pass the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, Rezan, king of Syria, Pekah the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, who went up against Jerusalem to war against them, but could not prevail. They were told from the house of David, Israel's confederate, with Abram. And then verse 3, The Lord said to Isaiah, Go forth to meet Ahaz thou and Sheer-Jesham thy son, and the end of the conduit of the open... How are you doing in terms of inspiration?
0: Get a good night, and then
1: you read Nephi, and he's going, Wow, read Isaiah, it'll teach you a lot. Mm-hmm. And not only that, Jacob says, Man, Jacob the prophet, the Book of Mormon says... Isaiah is awesome. In fact, let's, let me teach the people in the temple and then I'm just going to make sure I record all this Isaiah so that my people will have Isaiah and so that the people in the future will have Isaiah. They need to have this. You're thinking, maybe this is just to help me sleep <laughs> in the middle of the night send me back to bed. Okay? Now, obviously... The, the question here is, so, so it doesn't take too much genius to look at that and say, okay, these are local politics going on. There are local things happening. So here is the, here's the big million-dollar question. How come? How come it's in Isaiah, written more for the future? Why is it in the, in the Book of Mormon, so that we can't miss it every time we read the Book of Mormon? And this is just past history. What difference does this kind of stuff make to us in our lives? Because again, the idea of the scriptures is this should, if, if this isn't just reading history. This is what's in here that will help me this afternoon? What will Why do we need to know anything about this, or this history?
0: So I've been studying a, day a lot lately. I yeah. like the parables, like Christ the
1: parables that people have to really search not to not find the meaning for themselves. As I read this particular chapter, I had to spend like an hour. Studying this yeah, who? What? What's to going on there? The point,
0: though, like the whole thing is about them creating alliances with other people, and it's just teaching us, okay, so rely only on God. All the alliances are not going to work. So but it takes an hour to get there, but I'm learning. <laughs> I'm learning slowly, but I, I think it teaches.
1: That there are some lessons that if we'll understand just a little bit about the history, we'll see where Jacob is going and we'll see where Isaiah is going. Yeah? That we're coming to a time this is going to be our history. Oh, yes. It's a little bit like... Yeah, think about a little bit when we say... uh, the, the, if, you are, if you are a 12-year-old boy, what's your favorite part of the Book of Mormon? 12, 14-year-old boy. The war chapters. Oh, yeah, that, that, these guys are here. You know, cities and armies and stuff, and it's way cool. But the most of the time you go, I'm tired of blood. As we get older, and why is there like chapter after chapter after chapter in Alma on more wars and more wars? And ultimately, why are all the war chapters there?
0: Because
1: it's the time, it it is our world. And so is this. That's why I say a little bit of understanding about local history, and you begin to say, this is why this is so critical. But if we just do a cursory reading, or we don't see it as as history, along with the poetry part of Isaiah, then it means nothing to us. Don't you
0: think it also teaches us that Every time we stray from God's command or His teachings, we have, well, we're no longer righteous and we're being killed. Yeah, the minute that
1: we begin to stray, and and, and let's let's walk that through. So here's the, if we just take a quick uh, two-minute view of the history, now we put this in context. And what comes after this is going to be, now should jump out at us and say, wow, this is applicable. This is really applicable today, this week. Okay? Okay, so he's going to say In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, uh, the son of Uzziah, remember Ahaz ain't a great king, right? What happens is is that, and you've got to remember, just keep in mind the history. We've got Judah that is all around Jerusalem. Where are the ten tribes? In the north, the north part of Israel. And then up on top, then you've got the Syrian, the Assyrian Empire, and then you've got Egypt way over here. Okay, and so what's happening is uh, the Lord is going to speak through Isaiah. Remember, Isaiah is one of the royals; he's in the court. He's got Ahaz. Uh, Ahaz will always ignore him, uh, <coughs> but he's going to say to Ahaz. Uh, uh, Rezan the king of Syria up there and Pekah the son of Ramalia king of Israel so these are the two kings one of the ten tribes one in Syria and he's saying um, they're going to go up against Jerusalem to war against it they're going to collaborate they want they to take things over and it was told to, in verse 2 Syria is confederate with Ephraim meaning what? They form an alliance. And the the sole alliance is to bump off the king of Judah. So actually, so what's happening here is that Ahaz, king of Judah, is getting kind of an intelligence report. Let me tell you what your enemies out there are up to. They're out to bump you off. All right? And... (coughs) The Lord says to Isaiah, Take your son and share Jacob, thy son. We talk about names in a second. Meet him at the upper pool and say to him, Take heed. Verse 4. Be quiet. Fear not. Neither be faint hearted. And then listen how the Lord describes these two. The two tails of these smoking firebrands. Okay? Put that in different words. What's, what's the Lord saying about these two? They're what? Kind of like dragons? It's
0: saying like they're, they think they're hot stuff, but they're not. They're running
1: out. Yes. Fire, what happens with a firebrand? Think about, think about if you've ever been camping with kids. And what do kids do with their sticks? Put them in the fire. And they get them burning. And then they're going to wave them around. That's a firebrand. <laughs> And then what happens then it goes out so it's bright for a few minutes and it looks like a big spectacular thing and then they so th- so these two blow hearts these two hotheads are gonna they're gonna do this whole thing initially here and then these two tails of these two smoking firebrands uh, in the fierce anger with Syria uh and then they say, in verse six, let's go up against Judah and vex it, and make a breach, and set a king. We'll put our own king on the throne. Uh, and and then the Lord simply says, "Thus saith the Lord God."s Verse seven: It shall not stand; neither shall it come to pass. Now, pull out for just a second and say. So I want you to picture what's happening is that you're getting kind of an intelligence report. In those days, there was no way to know what's going on up north. And the prophet is coming to the king and saying, Syria is hooked up with uh, Israel, Ephraim. They're going to come down and attack you with the idea of putting their own person on the throne. And God says it will not happen. Now... And then Ahaz is going to ask for a sign in just a second. Yeah. It's kind of fun, that that harkens back to something that we were saying a little while ago where we think it's probably Naaman saying said to the king. He even knows what he's saying. In your bedroom. Yeah. Because <coughs> yeah. that just drives him nuts that somehow uh, God, the, the, the king of Judah keeps finding out everything we're up to. Now let's take this down to modern day. So, what does this tell us? First of all, about uh, the Lord looking at world conditions. What does it tell us about God? He knows knows what's going to happen. He's going to know what happened, and then he does what? He tells prophets. So, so prophets know what's going to happen. Sometimes very specifically they know what's going to happen. Then they're going to tell prideful leaders who will reject it. Doesn't mean that it's not true, but it means that prophets know these things. Now, how important is that as we're watching Jews having to leave uh, Europe and everything that we're watching and oh my gosh, ISIS is out of control and... And all of this and you know, same sex marriage, we did we've got to look to God who will tell his prophets. Prophets know these things. Now, on the outside then, the experts will tell you about what about our prophets. What's wrong with our prophets? What's wrong with Mormon prophets? What's wrong with apostles? They are old. old. <laughs> what do they know? They're all like in their eighties and nineties. And they are out of touch. They don't realize the 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 kind of the current needs that the world has changed and they're stuck behind. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. They're just old guys. And by the way, they're all guys. <laughs> You know, and so when they say something, uh, y- y- you ever you ever have to talk to a group of teenagers, and you're going to say, "Okay, make sure you don't date before 16," and then the eye rolling begins. Ugh. You know, here we go; it's just all this dumbness again. And there's reasons for all of this. Okay. Now, as it turns out, A has bless his pointed head going to say ask for a sign Uh, well the the Lord says try me a little bit and Ahaz says I'm not going to ask either will I tempt Uh, and so the Lord's going to give him a sign and in this sign I need you to hear and this is where we get these double meanings of prophecies prophecies come out and they have meaning at that moment and they have meaning now prophecies coming through a prophet you can see happening multiple times in multiple ways. Okay? So this one we know, right? So here comes, here comes from the Lord to Isaiah to this wicked king. And he says, okay, here's the sign. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, for he shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Okay. Now, we recognize on one side, what is this a prophecy of? Christ. This Christ, right. He is Emmanuel, which means God is with us. He's present with us. So why would, but that is how far down the road? Oh, about 700 years. Why would this then... What difference does that make to Ahaz? Yes? God is with He's telling him, trust in
0: the Lord. Right. people. Yes.
1: Okay. Why else would he get this one? <coughs> because this is, <coughs> this is being given to Ahaz to say, this is how you'll know. <laughs> This is how you'll know God's with us. What difference does that make this year <coughs> for Ahaz? Well, there's a second possible interpretation of it as a son. Which is what?
0: Isaiah. Isaiah's wife will a son also. Isaiah.
1: Yes. A son will conceive. Yeah. And, and that's exactly what it's going to be. And, and, and so you say, wait a minute. A virgin shall conceive. Isaiah's wife is going to conceive. Is she a virgin?
0: No.
1: In the sense that she is a prophetess. A virgin. A virgin, in the sense of Mary, didn't know men, didn't know a man. And in the sense of Isaiah's wife, this is somebody who didn't who, who was not of this world. She's a prophetess. In that sense, she's a virgin. And she's going to give. Birth to a son in nine months. And this will be a sign to him. And this is going to be a very special son. Now we're going to learn his name in just a second. It's a weird name. But when you name something in Israel, it means something. You put a name on something, it brings power. Okay? So in this case, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and calls his name Emmanuel. Um, this is going to be a very special sun, And you'll know and you'll see it. And it'll be in your lifetime. So part of why it is we have a hard time with Isaiah prophecies is the fact that we get these multi-layers here. And we get caught up in... And, and, and so you need to know enough history to be able to put this into perspective. Does that make sense? Okay, yeah.
0: Can you expound on this whole prophetess idea?
1: The fact that uh, Isaiah's wife was a prophetess. Uh, we don't know much more about her. Other than the fact that she is very much a part of what Isaiah does. We don't have any of her uh, prophesyings. How do we even know that? That she was a prophetess. Uh, it, I, wish I, I, I wish I had time to take you through this. I, in my readings and everything, there's numerous places he kind of refers to her as a prophetess. And that she's going to be kind of set apart from the world. As are his kids that get stuck with bad names.
0: <laughs>
1: you know, it's a, it, it's a little bit like being, being Isaiah's kid. is a little bit like uh, the, the brother that uh, uh, asked Joseph Smith to name his son. And so Joseph comes in to give him a blessing. And uh, he's going to name him Mahanrai Moriankomer. And I got to think that his wife goes. That's the last time we asked Joseph <laughs> today. One of our kids, and we have no idea what he's coming up with. Yeah. So um, there was Deborah the prophetess. Yes. Talked about Anna the prophetess. Yes. But so to me, it's not a stretch. Is no, the no. There's a lot of there, There's a lot of women that are out there. And remember when we talked about uh, last time about some of the rewriting that Josiah's court did in terms of the Deuteronomists that rewrote and pulled plain and precious truths out of Deuteronomy so that they're not there they did the same with same thing with Jeremiah they pulled information out of there that we no longer have like on Melchizedek and Enoch and, and all of those and this is this could have been easily one of those areas where they were a little uh, male dominated and they could have pulled the women's stuff out as well for all we know
0: so yeah yeah
1: Okay, let's take a step back. What does it mean to be a prophet? Yes, and it means those and it says in revelations, those that have those that have the testimony of Christ become prophets that can bear testimony of Christ with a, with a firm witness. In that sense, we all are given to the blessings of prophesying because for us to be able to say we believe in, in a Christ that will one day save us. What are we saying? What are we, pro- what are we speaking of? The future. Well, that's, that's I have a sure knowledge in the now of what will happen years down the road. That takes the spirit of prophecy. And, and in the case of these fabulous women in the Old Testament, of which we have very little record, they were testifying of Christ. They were taught testifying to what they know. The fact that we don't have them is a tragedy, I think. Okay? Yeah.
0: You know, and we really don't know and how could it be just as simple as uh, she's Mrs. Isaiah the prophet? The prophet she's a prophet. Yeah. So she's a missus, she's a prophetess who's also equally spiritual in her own right. Sure. Just like saying Mr. and Mrs. I'm a prophet, she's a prophetess, we don't know this is. But yeah, still, still
1: in her mind. Again, I go back to the, uh, the the remarkable experience we just had in state conference where we had we had uh, an area seventy and his wife and they're both testifying and you get this sense of equality of 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 spirit and drive and unity and that was very much evident as much as any uh, any uh, visiting authority I've ever seen uh, that we had a chance to see with the Greers. Wonderful experience. Okay. Alright. Uh, okay, so, so part of this today, as we talk about the storms that are coming, part of it is our understanding the role of a prophet, how prophets work, and the fun part is we get to see how we, in a sense, get a chance to fill some of that prophet profile in our own lives and the people that we serve. So here's one that jumped out at me, and it is just this is kind of fun. So let's go to Isaiah six. And by the way, I'm i particularly picking uh, on this because these are chapters that we find in the in uh, the Book of Mormon. It's like we keep running into them. If you're going to read the Book of Mormon, you're going to hit these. Okay, and then probably next week I want to jump way ahead uh, to. Uh, to what to me is kind of the meat of Isaiah and it's Isaiah 52, 53, 54, uh, 55 it is, it is the messianic power of Isaiah and then the week after we'll probably finish with Isaiah talking about 60 through 66 and the great blessings that are coming That's Okay, different. but to, particularly today we're looking at stuff that shows up in the Book of Mormon uh, because Jacob copied all of this stuff Nephi made sure it was in there Okay, all right Now I want you to, but you're going to have to picture this a little bit because there are some images here, brothers and sisters, that should just pop out at you if you'll read it for what it says. And try and picture this if you can. Uh, In the year that Uzziah died, um, I saw, meaning Isaiah, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne. So he has a vision of God. High and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Okay, now stop for a second. What is his train? It's his robe. Have you ever stopped to picture for a second that God has a robe? Would you picture that that robe is a robe of righteousness? So that when we get a chance to perhaps be in sacred environments and we are also wearing robes or sacred emblems, doesn't that, in a sense, you kind of get a sense that says we are also being clothed in, in, in resemblance of identification with God. He also has a robe of righteousness. You know, we've talked before about the Joseph and the coat of many colors. Was it a striped coat with different colors? No. What was it? It was. It was. It was. A, it was a coat of skins, and specifically, it was the coat of skins uh, that was a designating Joseph as what? The next The birthright son. They're not just. Again, the brothers aren't just upset because he got a pretty coat. They are upset because he is wearing the robe. He's wearing the coat that says I am the birthright. I am the recipient of the blessings of my father. So the sense that wearing robes that that indicate that we are recipients of power and righteousness and covenants and promises. And we wear those is of great deal. And, and that it has at its highest levels. It goes back to God who has... A, a, a robe of righteousness. okay Kind of cool. So so what you're starting to see here there, there's some temple images that, that should be jumping out at you here. okay Now so he's going to see God and his train filled the temple and above above that throne stood the seraphim. Now you need to remember that I, I am theme is' a, uh, it's, it's plural. In Hebrew it's always a plural. We talk about El, meaning God, and EM is plural. So Elohim literally means the gods. Joseph Smith kind of went to town on the idea that uh, Elohim means plural. And so one of the first words in the Bible is in the beginning, the Elohim, the gods, created this and this. And, and Joseph said, the old Jews that translated. Didn't like the idea of being more than one God. And so they translated that as God. Elohim is plural. Him is plural. So this is. Uh, seraphim. Uh, and I've got it up here. That seraph. Is to burn. It means. Uh, so the plural means the burning ones. Or another way to say that. Is the bright shining ones. That they dwell in everlasting burnings. Does Sarah mean burning? Yes, uh huh. Sarah and in Hebrew means to burn. And Seraphim is the burning ones. And by the way, we will see it in one other place. And let me just flip over it. It is in the Nauvoo Temple dedication, or Kirtland Temple dedication, that Joseph finishes. Verse 79, as he's concluding the dedication of the Kirtland Temple. Here's what he says. Also this church put put upon it thy name. Give it that name. Give it the power. And help us by the power of thy spirit. And then I love this. That we may mingle our voices with the bright, shining seraphs. The bright, shining seraphs. The burning ones. Those that that are so bright it just looks like they're on fire. The bright shining seraphs around thy throne. Pretty good chance that Joseph saw that throne that Isaiah is talking about. With acclamations of praise, singing Hosanna to God and the Lamb. Okay? So th- those are the seraphim. And Isaiah is going to be is going to see these seraphim. And then we get a little caught up in the idea that they've got six wings. Okay. And, and one one set of wings is for the face and one's for the feet and for the other he did fly. Okay, translate that. Pull the, pull the symbol from the symbolized. What is that symbolizing? What is that telling us about the seraphim? Yeah. Wings are symbolic of the power to act and not to work. And, and okay, Yeah. Right, and if we're going to take those white over the over the face, meaning veiled. Yeah. A bit veiled. And over the feet. They can travel. They can kind of go wherever. That gives you the idea that these seraphim are very powerful. They go and they go wherever they need to go, specifically to do what? To teach. As you even said yesterday in conference mind again. If, if an angel came to you today, if one of the seraphim stood in front of you and began to speak, what would they what would they say? What would they speak? Scripture. Angels quote scripture because they therefore they speak the words of Christ. That's the seraphim. So you get this sense of this throne And they're surrounded by these angels that sing praises and prophesy of who he is. Okay, now, and then, listen closely. uh, And and they cried one to another and said, holy, holy, holy. You get this three times. Remember in in Hebrew uh, tradition, the three is sacred. Okay, to repeat something three three times. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Holy, holy, holy. That three times... Is, is uh, that announcing? Is uh, the Lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory? And then listen closely here. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. Oh, what posts are we talking about? Picture the inside of uh, the Temple of Solomon. Remember that you go through uh, the two massive posts on each side. You walk into the holy place. And if you're walking inside the holy place, it's this beautiful place. On one side is the menorah. And and what you're really looking at is the curtain and the veil of the temple is right in in front of you, leading into the holy of holies. It's right in front. Some have suggested that there were probably... uh, uh, embroidered uh, angels on the veil, but you're looking directly at the veil, and then right next to the veil, leading into the holy of holies, is the altar of incense, and it's smoking. And remember, we've talked before that the idea was that what would happen is is that the the high priest would go outside the temple to the um, uh, the uh, where they put out to the altar and is burning the the sacrifice, and they would take with tongs that they would then pick up these hot coals. They would put them in there. They would then walk them into the holy place, and they would put these hot coals on the altar of incense. And they would mix it with sweet spices and incense, and that hot coal mixed with the incense would then send up uh, a smoke. And what's the purpose of the smoke? What's that symbolic of? The prayers ascending to heaven, right? And that those prayers are ascending up and they're right next to the veil heading into the Holy of Holies. Does that make sense? Okay, so you need to get that picture in your mind. This is, this is where, where Isaiah is. He's telling you where he is. He's standing in the holy place next to the veil, next to the altar of incense, and it is. And that's why he's going to say, the posts of the door moved at the voice of him. He's hearing the voice. Perhaps through, coming from the Holy of Holies on the other side. Okay. The voice of Christ, and the house was filled with smoke. So he's standing there, and the smoke is coming from the incense. And he's, so he's surrounded by the prayers. He's hearing the voice. And one of the voices he's hearing is the voice of the seraphim. Just as they're talking to each other. Okay? Now, as he's literally standing there in front of the veil with the altar of incense there, listen to what his response is. And it would be the same response as it would with us. okay. Then said I, Woe is me, I am undone, and it means I am lost. Say that in different words. Woe is me! I am. Oh, wretched man that I am! Oh, wretched man that I am! I am unworthy. I am. I am. I'm unclean. I. God is right there, and I'm about to be ushered into His presence, and I am not worthy. Picture that one. I am, I am nothing. I don't deserve to be there. Remember, uh, taught, working with a friend of mine once that got ready to go to the temple, and she never felt like she was ever worthy, and she expected that when she walked into the temple that it would fall on itself. <laughs> you know, that she'd get zapped, or that, or that one of the officials would escort her out of the building and just say, you don't, you don't deserve this. You're just not worthy. Okay? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. It's, it's like reading Second uh, Nephi 4. And poor Nephi is going, you know, wretched man that I am. I don't deserve any of this. And you're going, gee, I wish I could be like him. But you get this sense of one of the things that happens with prophets is how, how uh, humble they are and how they recognize, even in spite of everything, the more I know about God, the more I realize how undeserving I am. Woe is me, I am unworthy. I am unclean because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. I'm coming out of the world. I'm being surrounded by the wickedness that is Jerusalem and Judah. So even if it wasn't just me, I'm also surrounded by all this wickedness. You ever had that experience in the temple? Just the daily garbage and the stuff we're subjected to... don't you kind of step inside the temple and go, and just catch your breath, but you're still satiated. And I don't know about you, but it takes me a few minutes to make that shift. The the things I'm worried about, thinking about, leave that out there and go in the sacred environment. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I like that. You guys hear that one? That, that uh, a couple getting ready to leave the, the Washington, D.C. Temple talking about having to walk outside of the temple, out to the real world, and the temple president reminded them that says, no, this is the real world. What's out here is the temporary part. I really like that. There's also that sense, too, that I think that we're going to carry the temple within us that somehow we're going to try and carry that idea forward. Okay? Alright. Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of unclean lips. For mine eyes, and mine eyes have seen the King. I did the, the, the contrast between the garbage going on in Jerusalem and I have seen sacred things. And I'm aware that I'm still part of this world and my own, my own uncleanliness. Is, just, is startling. And all of this while he's standing in front of the veil, surrounded by the smoke of the altar of incense. Now, watch this process. Verse 6 Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand. Where did you get the coal?
0: Altar.
1: For off the altar a live coal in his hands which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar and he laid it upon the, the incense? No, this, one, this particular coal he places where? Yeah. On his lips, symbolically. Okay? Uh, and lo, hath touched my lips and then listen how he is cleansed. Is somehow Isaiah then going to stand in front of the Lord and offer excuses and explanations? He just says, I am unworthy. And the seraphim says, we've got you covered. Here comes the call. And thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin purged. How are we cleansed? cleansed. By our actions? No. No. How are we cleansed? By His great mercy. By the power of the atonement. It cleanses us. We can never take credit. For that, we we were having discussion in a group the other night about the seven R's of the repentance thing and restitution and repetition and recognition and all that stuff and all the and all the the the, the major thing we missed in all those seven R's that I grew up listening to was it never included the word redeemer. It's almost like if I'll do the seven R's, I'll be cleansed. We shouldn't use it. We shouldn't use the seven R's. Because it's all, it all puts us on us. Because then we did it. And, and this is wonderful Isaiah just saying. I am unclean and the angels cleanse him. Now. So now thy iniquity has taken away thy sins. Purged. And now he's going to hear the voice of the Lord. Now. Here's this double meaning. That comes with prophecies again. Then This, ought to, this sounds familiar. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then said, I hear him, I send me. Okay? We recognize this is what?
0: Jesus.
1: This is Jesus in the the premortal council in heaven, right? And and this is exactly what the Savior said. That's one layer. Take it more personal. Who else is saying this?
0: Isaiah.
1: Isaiah is saying this. The Lord is saying, who shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I, Isaiah, said, here am I
0: sending.
1: Now, let me ask. How often in our church experience uh, do we volunteer for college? <laughs> Imagine if the, if the bishop stood up and said, We are really in need of a, pri- of a primary president. Whom shall I send? <laughs> you know it's bad enough in priesthood session um, my, I, I, I feel for my son who's in the elders quorum president and he'll stand up and he'll go um, the Williams are moving on Saturday morning and yes yeah, she does have two pianos and a freezer and they're on the fourth floor <laughs> can we get a sign up who would be available on Saturday morning to come help the Williams move The two pianos and the freezer on the fourth floor. Yeah, exactly. Everybody goes, uh... They start checking their phone, and it's like, man, I just got really busy. (laughs) We got these things that need to be done. And there's nobody in that priesthood session going, oh, here am I, send me. I love pianos. Where do we do that? Uh, How often... Uh, President, how well would it work if you stood up in in a priesthood session and you said, you know, this bishop in the ward has been there a long time. We need a new bishop. Whom shall I send? (laughs) Yeah, uh, yeah. Whoever took the piano, send him. He'll do it. Yeah. (laughs) It's implicit that when we say yes, yeah. that we say, Here am I. Here am I, send me. But isn't it interesting that that's been in the, the church and the organization in which we're set is set on that we wait until we receive a calling. Uh, in other churches, who, who ended up being the scoutmaster in any other church? There's some guy there that's going, I love scouting, I love the boys, here am I, send me. And they sign up to be lifetime scouts. no, no, we're just doing it. It wasn't our call. We didn't choose. President? Yes, we have 970
0: people who were down at the temple. None of them, to my knowledge, were instructed to go down and volunteer there. They did that on
1: their own. In other words, we begin to find places where outside of our formal callings that there are so many other places where we are instructed, because this is what happens. When we recognize that we have that we were sinful, that we hear the voice of the Lord, and that we that a cleansing and a gratitude fills us for the things that we've received. Isn't there a moment then where that's exactly what we do? We stand up and go, Here am I send me? Here's a new family that just moved into the ward. Who's going to fellowship them? Here am I, send me. Somebody needs some help to be able to take care of this. Here am I, send me. Sisters, you guys do this so much better than we do as guys. We need meals, we need somebody to watch kids. We need, we need, we need. Here am I, send me, I'll do that. It's amazing to me just
0: teaching the doctrine of to share How can we see that? In the early days of the church, the church was really built on a lot of men who were coming to the gospel and saying, Oh, here's truth and I love it, and now what do you want me to do? where do I go?
1: Isn't that true? They always want a revelation that would then say, I'm available, put me to work. And isn't that really kind of what we're saying here? If we look at this pattern that said, when we recognize that we are unclean, that the Lord has cleansed us, that our next our next step in that process is then, I'll go where you want me to go, here am I, send me. I think that's just marvelous. Yeah? very much senior missionaries oh that yeah because they're just saying you know what I'm going to put everything on hold in fact we've been saving up or we're getting ready what do we want to do we want to go serve missions Here am I send me send me here send me there and and fascinating that we get these seasoned saints that have been that have been spending a lifetime getting ready and then what happens? You walk into the bishop so and say, Here am I, send me, uh, reporting for duty. Yeah, that's the pattern. That that we're cleansed and then we serve. And we're cleansed and then we serve. And and that's why that's why I love this whole setting where Isaiah is just saying, he's so filled with all of this and he just says, what, "Where I'll go where you want me to go. I'm reporting for duty. Here I am.
0: Sounds like a missionary, doesn't it? Yeah. So Yeah. Yeah. He opened it up and he read that he'd been called to go to Tucson, Arizona, and you know everybody was so excited and everything. And this one little labor boy of ours who's a
1: member of the church came up to him and he said, Tanner, are you just the least bit sad that you're not going to someplace exotic or something? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're just going to go. Isn't that true? Well, I think this is. That's why I say I love I love Isaiah six because you just get this sense, and particularly if you see the temple implications of this, what we ought we should be walking out of that temple going, "Here am I, send me," because I've just been cleansed. Yeah.
0: You're right. Yeah.
1: Perfect. Yeah, they are. All right. So, uh, so if we get this sense, now let's put this against the backdrop of if if we have a people that are being prepared, that are being cleansed, that are ready to serve. Okay. And now is the time that it's going to be needed because here comes the coming storm. Okay? So let's step back for just a second to Isaiah 4. And I'm kind of going backwards here. Isaiah 4, 5, and 6. In order to prepare us, and so much of Isaiah is there's destruction coming and it doesn't have to. Get yourselves ready. Cleanse yourself. Prepare yourself. Isaiah 4. 4, 5, and 6. The Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and a smoke by day and a shining of flame, flaming fire by night. Uh, upon all the glory shall be a defense. There shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat and a place of refuge and a covert from the storm and from rain. Okay. He just told you... Let's, let's break this one down. He just said where the defense is going to be against this storm. Where's the first one? Because there are actually three places of refuge here. Mount Zion. Every
0: dwelling.
1: dwelling place. So where, where's the dwelling places? Where you live. That that then becomes, becomes a protection. Okay, um, I'm always a little bit amazed when, and I, I was aware of this uh, a night or two ago. Uh, Cindy and I sat down to kind of watch a movie, and uh, and so here it was that we invited these actors and these movie into our house, and and they keep throwing out all these words that we would never use in our house. And I'm always kind of amazed by the fact that oh, it's a movie. I'm fine with them speaking like that in my house. When, if it was, if it had been my kids, if it was a visiting neighbor, if it was anybody else coming into my house using these words, I'd have kicked them out or reprimanded them or told them to stop them. Oh, but it's part of the movie, so I'm going to let somebody come into my house and speak that way. Just a weird jangling of what we do in, and what we allow inside our, the walls of our dwelling place. Okay? So... Place of refuge uh, as a dwelling place. Where else? Assemblies. In the assemblies, Wards, Wards stakes, church meeting. Uh, I come back to and say, you know, sometimes those people that have gone inactive and they're gonna they're gonna give you that. Where are you? How come you're not at church? They're gonna say, well, I can get closer to God with my kids at the lake than I ever can be in, in that place full of hypocrites. When I'm out in the woods, when I'm whenever I'm closer to God. Nature. Na, 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 na. Okay? Why is there great power? Why are our assemblies a refuge?
0: Where one more gathered in my
1: name, that's right. Yeah. I will be where you are gathered together. Okay? Why else? Why, what is there in our assemblies?
0: Covenants.
1: Covenants. Specifically. Yes. One of those things we heard this weekend a lot, that the power of God is made manifest. We become aware of it. We are filled with it. The power of God is made manifest through the ordinances. And we have to assemble for the ordinances. It's one of the reasons why in the early days of the church, and you had the saints scattered all over the place, and the Lord said, gather, assemble to Kirtland. Why? So we can build my house, so that we can have the ordinances, and that will create a defense. So their refuge in our dwelling places, in our assemblies, and where else? Oh, and a tabernacle. And this tabernacle meaning the temple. Will be a shadow in the daytime. Why? Why the shadow in the daytime? I mean, think it poetically. Think about what he's saying. Why is the temple a shadow in the daytime? The it will. It. It. Got protects us from the heat, the heat, and the cold. Yeah, it's it's there wherever we go in the daytime. Also, too, when when. Uh, Israel was was marching in the wilderness. What was the shadow coming from? A cloud. There was a cloud up there. And what were they supposed to do? Follow the cloud. It gave them a direction. So all the time during the day, we follow the cloud. It shows us which way to go. It's a cloud in the daytime. And that shadow, follow the, follow the shadow. Okay? And... Uh, it, it is a place of refuge. How often is the temple a place of refuge? Oh, yeah. Just that, I need a break from all of this earth stuff. And it is a covert from the storm and from the rain. It, it is a protection in our, in our bigger tribulations. Okay? Great. All right. Let's see. Um, In the time that we've got remaining, let's let's go here. All of these, and remember, all of these verses are being included for the Nephites that are struggling and are being given to the Latter-day Saints who read it every time they read the Book of Mormon. So let's go to Isaiah 8. Because now he's going to kind of talk to our our world, talk to our life. All right. And the Lord said unto me, Take thee a great roll and write on it with a man's pen. Concerning? Here is Mahanrai Moriankamur. Here is the son that was born to the prophetess that was assigned to Ahaz, and this is. And again, if you were born to Isaiah, lots of luck. I don't know. Remember, Hezekiah married his daughter. It'd be interesting to know what his daughter's name was. Um, But but took a man concerning Maharshala Hajbaz. Anybody hit the? the uh, footnote on that, what does malar haha a la me mean? It means what? To speed to the spoil, he hasteneth the
0: prey.
1: Yeah, hey, hey. Oh. actually, you know what I got here? Yeah. To speed to the spoil, he hasteneth the prey. What? I mean, even if even if you're a prophetess, if you're still his mom, aren't you really kind of looking at your husband and going, uh-uh. yeah. really?
0: <laughs> you know, I mean, what do you think, could you just
1: name him Jacob? <laughs> Why would this sign to Ahaz be called, to speed to the spoil, he hasteneth the prey?
0: Of
1: course. Yeah, specifically talking about Assyria, there are enemies coming toward you, and this is your sign. That God knows who's coming. Now, why don't you jump, let, let's jump down here. Because I, I think this is where, in this one, this is where we learn something about refuge. Verse 11, the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand. Instructed me, saying, I should not walk in the way of His people. Uh, Don't align yourself with the wicked. And then he's going to say, verse 13, sanctify, respect, love the Lord of hosts Himself. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. Who should they be fearing? God. God. More than the Assyrians, more than the Egyptians, trust him, rely on him, let him be your fear. You want to be afraid of somebody? Be afraid of him. Yeah. Now, you're entitled to take it differently. It's,
0: it's
1: certainly, your prerogative has never stopped you before. <laughs>
0: Oh. Instead of you bearing them, to give them... The Let him
1: take your bear. fear. Yeah. Let him take your dread. Oh, I probably like that better. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: yeah. That's, okay. She's your bear in half. Yes, yeah, she is.
1: <laughs> After 36 years, today, she should be. Happy
0: anniversary.
1: Happy. Why, not, why not? Okay. So... Let him take those things. And then here comes, and, and as all of these calamities are coming, then he's going to say, and he shall be for a sanctuary, but for, a, he, he, for us he will be a sanctuary. How is he for everybody else? He's going to be for a stone of stumbling, and for a rock of offense. And this is, this is. Hebraic parallelism. Think about these things. In a, in a poetic. Two line stanza. He is a. Stone of stumbling. And a rock of offense. To both houses of Israel. The ten tribes. As well as Jacob. Or Judah. And a snare. To the inhabitants. Of Jerusalem. Whoa, okay, this, he's the refuge. Why would this God be a stone of stumbling to his people?
0: Constant
1: guilty reminders, <laughs> Constant guilty reminders of? Yeah. yeah. Why else would he be a stone of stumbling?
0: What else
1: says yes. Um, and this is where we get this sense, and he, and the Savior will identify Himself as the cornerstone that we're all going to be built on Him. But I think there's a very literal sense where He is a stone of stumbling. Do you know in the original, you, you guys have all seen the Ten Commandments. And I know I'm going to butcher this thing badly. Do you know that there was an, a, that there was an additional uh, opening to the to the uh, when Cecil B. DeMille made the Ten Commandments, and and usually the first thing you would see when the movie came on the screen was this phrase. And again, so, somebody may know it better than I do. But the, as best as I can remember, it said this: "You cannot break the commandments. You can only break yourself against them." That's right. That we will try to. We, we come up against the commandments. And how many people do we see in, in sacred settings that run up against the, the commandments and against obedience and just beat themselves against this thing and stumble over it? What a struggle that ends up being. And, when, and instead of being the stepping stone and the step up, it is the stone of stumbling. Stumbling. For the wicked, why again then is it a stone of stumbling? In what way?
0: In 2 9, um, he talks about how the right. He says, The only know the word and truth are hard against them, humans, but the righteous do not for they love the truth and are not shaken. So for those who are wicked, that truth, that law, is hard against
1: them. But the righteous for them, to step oh, it's so hard. It's so hard. Okay. I'm watching in particular currently and, and I, I want to be careful because I'm not just saying those that are wicked uh, I'm watching those that are disaffected I'm watching those that are confused I'm watching those that are struggling and those that are being uh, disaffected by church's history by some of our doctrines and they're walking themselves out of the church and I watch them struggle <coughs> And for them, the doctrines of the gospel become a stone of stumbling. They're, stum- and they're, they're tripping, they're struggling with it, they're having a hard time with that. I just can't believe that the God of Israel would tell us how many earrings we could wear. Or what we could drink, or whatever. And the women can't be ordained. And they stumble against it. Okay? So, I love this quote by Elder Holland talking about the Book of Mormon. Addressing some of these same issues. If anyone is foolish enough or misled enough to reject 531 pages of heretofore unknown text teeming with the literary and semantic complexity without honestly attempting to account for the origin of these pages. The idea here often is to always shoot the messenger, right? So if we're not sure what to do with the Book of Mormon, what do we do? Go after the translator. We'll go after the prophet. We'll demean his character, his history, his lack of education. All of that kind of stuff. We must attack Joseph. Because we cannot attack or explain the book. You begin to see why it is that the Book of Mormon was necessary. Because if it was just going to ride on the shoulders of an unlearned schoolboy without any education, off the farm, we'd be in trouble. Especially without accounting for the powerful witness of Jesus Christ and the profound spiritual impact that witness has had on it for what is now tens of millions of readers. If that is the case, and listen to this, if that is the case, then such a person, elect or otherwise, has been deceived, and if he or she leaves this church, it must be done by crawling over or under or around the Book of Mormon to make that exit. In that sense, the Book of Mormon has become a stumbling block. If that's the case, then such a person, elect or otherwise, has been deceived. If he or she leaves this church, it must be done by crawling over or under or around the Book of Mormon to make that exit. In that sense, the book is what Christ himself was said to be, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. A barrier in the path of one who wishes not to believe in this work. There's the stone of stumbling. It is if we want to do what we want to do, if we want to do what our natural man and woman has to do, then the Savior becomes a rock of stumbling. We stumble over Him trying to get out of to walk our own path. The Book of Mormon becomes likewise. And I believe with all my heart that Joseph Smith is a major stone of stumbling for so many. Yeah. and get it, does she? No, and and part of what happens is is that if we're trying, I I see a lot of people trying to make the Book of Mormon, for instance, a 19th century book with 19th century ideas. And the more in depth I study, the more I realize it's not that. All of the phrases and everything come from elsewhere. And it is the same way with the Savior. The Gospel will be a stone of stumbling to many. All right, uh, finally, I want to finish with this. And this actually goes back to Isaiah 1. So here is here is the, the poetry for those that would follow, those that are going to stand up and say, here am I, send me. And we too stand in, and we're so aware as we stand in sacred places, and we recognize our own uncleanliness, we recognize our own human failings wash ye make you clean put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil learn to do well and then here comes his direction learn to do well, seek justice relieve the oppressed vindicate the fatherless plead for the widow remember that we talked about that was one of Jerusalem's greatest sins Another part in here, I didn't even get it to it. He gets after the rich. He says, you've placed all your farms together so that the poor don't even have a place to, to uh, plant. I think it's in Isaiah 5. You've, you've, you've kind of hogged all the land. They don't have a place to live and grow and thrive. And boy, we could spend a whole lesson on that. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. I love this sense that the gospel is reasonable. It is, if you'll just come together and listen and discuss, the gospel makes sense. But only if we're not trying to stumble over it on our way out. Come let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red as crimson, they shall be as wool. Uh, Stop for a second. Why would he call our sins scarlet and crimson? Remember, this is poetic. Why is he using that imagery? The blood. blood. Where might we see blood? Think Israel. Where might blood be splattered? Cross. Cross. But this is ancient Israel. Where the sacrifice? And where at the sacrifice? At the altar. So who is the blood splattered on? The high priests that are offering, the, the that are doing the actual blood sacrifices and in the killing of those animals and the blood is splattering on these priestly robes in the process of then being burnt. But ahead of that, there must be a blood sacrifice. And so the blood is carried on, on their garments. And the Savior is saying to us, Though your sins be as scarlet. Your sins that have stained the high priest. And the high priest is in the, is in the similitude and symbolic of who? Christ. Christ. That he is the one whose... The, our blood has stained him. Our blood has stained his garments. But he says those garments shall be washed white in, in a very interesting way. And his blood, which will cleanse and make them white. But at the front end of this, though your sins be as scarlet on me, though you have, I'm carrying you around, I've, I've, I've shed my own blood in Gethsemane for you, your blood, my blood, mingled with my garment in Gethsemane. I've always thought that he had to probably go wash in the, in the, in, uh, the river Kidron, before he actually kind of went on to everything else because he would have been blood splattered coming out of Gethsemane. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they be red as crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye are willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. Conversely, if you refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Fascinating then. That part of what Isaiah is saying, if you're up in the middle of the night, you're looking at Isaiah and you go, I need counsel, I need strength, I need spiritual strengthening. And he's saying, stick to your sanctuaries, in your dwellings, in your assemblies, in your tabernacles, and be willing. In your own sense, stand before the veil of God and, and recognize that He will cleanse you. Your blood has splattered Him, but He will cleanse that. And all He asks us to do is to be what? Willing and obedient. That's all He asks. Just trust me. I think one of the great sorrows for the Lord in working with the children of Israel is He kept saying to them, let me fight your battles. I will fight your battles. And they keep trying to do it on their own. But when they fight, when he fights their battles, they win. When they fight their own battles, they lose. And Isaiah is saying over and over God knows, God tells a prophet, follow the prophet and listen. And oddly enough, isn't that weird? We hear the same thing in general conference. (laughs) It's just amazing how that works. Brothers and sisters, I I, I bear my testimony that. This that these sections of Isaiah were were contained in the Book of Mormon, so that we would have access to this pattern, and we would see it clearly uh, how important it is to follow in turbulent times. <coughs> we're watching turbulent times and getting worse by the year. Literally watching the fulfillment of prophecy. And this is where we stay as close as we can to the prophets. Don't allow their words to become stumbling blocks to us. We just need to be
0: willing and we will eat of the fat of the lamb. And these things I leave with you in in Jesus' name.